The title of this evening's talk is The Seamless Circle of Generosity. And we'll begin with a, a brief discussion about the paramis. The paramis are the accumulated forces of purity within the mind, within the heart. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, hatred and delusion has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each one of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our mind and heart. One of the roots of the word parami, which is a Pali word, conveys the sense of supreme quality. Paramita, which is the Sanskrit word, means going towards something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. Sometimes the word parami is uh, translated in a short way, just translated as the word perfection in English. In the Theravada Buddhist uh, orientation, there are ten paramis, and I'll just list them. The first, I'll say the word in Pali and then English. The first is uh, dana, generosity. The second is sila, which is virtue or ethical behavior. The third is nekama, which is renunciation. The fourth, panya, wisdom. Virya, energy or effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, aditana, resolve or determination. Metta, loving kindness. And upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow, strengthen, and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort or energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful and result in many, many forms of happiness forms of contentment and a sense of well-being. In relationship to the most basic, worldly, sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated mind, the liberated heart. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these paramis, these forces of the mind and heart, help to counteract the forces that 
cause human beings such great suffering. As we've discussed over time here, everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our lives, in our mind and heart, they're really they're not to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, not the real practice, so to say. This aspect of, of training the mind is really an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our process of moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow and as they deepen and get more and more refined through our practice, they're incredibly powerful causes for all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being paramis related to the purity of conduct, action, our way of being in the world, conduct in its everyday worldly aspects. And um, these, this is what these are. These paramis are generosity, and virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, of understanding, of insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom the understanding, the insight of the deepest liberating kind. Insight into the nature of things. The second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of panya, or wisdom itself, patience, metta, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated, And so they bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice itself and its process is the practice and the process of purification. The path of practice that leads one towards liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and other very specific practices, the metta practice and the other Brahma-vihara practices, are called the path of purification. And so the development of the paramis organically or naturally occurs within the context of all and each of these practices. In our everyday life here in this intensive retreat setting and in our everyday life outside of the retreat setting, bringing the paramis more into the forefront of one's 
daily life can really be quite helpful and fruitful. It can be a very potent aspect of our practice. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. Traditionally, the practice, the development, and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. And so this evening we'll look into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart, of the mind. And beginning with a story. Quite a number of years ago now, I was uh, living at the Insight Meditation Center, Insight Meditation Society. Uh, And while I was living there, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far from IMS, or the Insight Meditation Society. And I'd go there to pay a visit to the Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know of him. His name translates as Maha, which is great, and Gosananda, which translates as the sound of bliss. Maha, as he was fondly called, was uh, from Cambodia and uh, is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known uh, over the world for his for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian uh, countryside um, and the villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago um, at the age of approximately 94. And he'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt to me like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple and unpretentious really so rare, a being with a really truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a sweet and uh, deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken uh, into his quarters to say hello. We didn't know each other very well at that time, and we hadn't seen each other for uh, over a year. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. 
being such an old man, uh, there were uh, things that he didn't remember. So I uh, recalled to him the last time that we'd met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And his response was, Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) So, uh, as you are, I burst out laughing, and I said, Wow, must be quite a nose. And he very directly and very sweetly said, It's a good nose. (laughs) During a three-month retreat that I was um, teaching at IMS, uh, not too long after this Colorado retreat um, that I taught with uh, Venerable Gosananda, I I visited Venerable Gosananda uh, at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I, I felt like I was going to see my, my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me Mum. That was what, how he addressed me. And at one point I asked him um, why he called me Mum, when in fact uh, he was so much older than me. And his response was, we have all been each other's mothers at some point, and so you're Mum. So that day when I went to visit him, Mum and grandfather, because he felt like my grandfather, sat and we drank tea together and we laughed a little bit. We talked a little bit of history about uh, Maha's life and we talked about the three-month retreat that I was uh, teaching at IMS and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked about Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. I found it really quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards, my heart felt, felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then emanating on outward. An experience that would always continue, continue on beyond our time together for a while. That day, when I left the Cambodian temple, to my total surprise, Uh, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice, tins of jasmine tea, and sacks of sugar to take back to all of the three-month yogis at IMS. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. So this evening, as I already mentioned, we'll explore generosity. The quality really holding a special place and opportunity for all of us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. Particularly now, as you will soon be taking your practice out of the intensive retreat setting into the world of your daily life.
And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and the great compassion that he had that we're sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a relatively recent uh, story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling of this legend is adapted from the tale as told by Rafe Martin. It's said that many Maha Kulpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India and offer an evening of public talks, revealing his Dhamma. The villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. So to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk along through their village and then cover it with a piece of very, or some number of pieces of very fine cloth. <clears throat> In the forest just outside of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, uh, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and a great deal of virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later time was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. <clears throat> Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that this young man, Sumedha, thought, My family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take, it with, take any of it with them upon leaving the world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I, too, will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I remain idle? Nope, I'm going to leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So it's said that he announced his intention to the king and he gave all of his money to the poor and he entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes made of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. And within a short time, he gained a profound insight <clears throat> into the nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom, wisdom that was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and 
understanding. <clears throat> On the day of Dipankara's, uh, Dipankara Buddha's visit uh, to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the town. It's said that, seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha, rare beyond all comprehending, is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road, picking a particularly swampy stretch of low ground to fill. He worked with a heart, a mind, filled with light and joy and repeating over and over to himself, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it. And he loosened and spread his very long matted hair, making a passage of himself for the Buddha uh, Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties and danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. Well, the next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at that very spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew, this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. And in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, and men and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here in the mud will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama, 
And when he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs. Old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truth. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. Then with renewed energy and strength, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. <clears throat> well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. The next moment, then, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha rose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. It said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. <clears throat> I think that most of us usually think <clears throat> of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving a process that very clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness, and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive this seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago, and my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area, and with a very bright, uh, big and bright smile on his face, he thrusts a, a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them 
with delight and great heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were friends of my friend, good friends of my friend. And the 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I learned that in China, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing uh, some degree of attachment, a fair amount of degree of attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though I felt uh, a bit like uh, a one-handed giver during my consideration of doing this, the possibility of doing this. And then, finally, uh, deciding to do it. When the time came to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. And at that point, it was really a joy. Though, in the process of getting to that point, there was, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend, a dear friend of mine, waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at IMS. And finally, the conditions do all come together. But just one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation while he's driving me in his taxi cab about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes this small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car, and he hands it to me, gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to, or actually even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just really opens, and it's easy to accept this beautiful purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle, surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and warm blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Another voice calls, I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. Quite a number of summers ago, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos 
Española area here, not too far away in uh, in Española here in New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing and food and all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as many offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself, and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of Saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or your father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, this offering, every morning, every single morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and the genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. From the Buddha, if beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, They would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, his community, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. 
Most of us living in the Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl, it isn't easily available in this country, which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. And of course, during our whole retreat, on some level, this is what we're doing with our meals. We're receiving what's offered and we pick up our dishes and fill them with what's offered in support of a way of life right here during this month. Normally, we don't engage uh, from the side of offering, offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance, and through that process reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And to some degree, to the contrary, this retreat has been wonderful in this regard, with uh, a number of meals being offered uh, throughout this retreat as dana. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, to thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations material accumulations and the accumulation of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're quite deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and quite sticky conditioning, I think that it takes quite a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. I'd like to share a a poem uh, regarding this discussion by a woman named Naomi Shihab Nye. It's from her book, Different Ways to Pray. And this uh, poem was written in Colombia in 1978. And she called it kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened bra. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. 
how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture, there's a deep and quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns uh, to see and to know the ephemeral, the constantly changing nature of things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in this retreat, my seat in the dining room, my walking path, What in this world really, truly belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth the inner wealth with qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is really a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixating on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. 
Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can be forever given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so, from this perspective, the Buddha tells us the greatest gift is the act of giving. There's a a very short uh, sutta uh, teaching from the Buddha in the Anguttara Nikaya, and I'd like to read just a portion of it. It's called Two People in English. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anattapindaka's monastery, in Anattapindaka's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greeting and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. We have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama. Instruct us, Master Gotama, for the long-term benefit and happiness, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responded, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. The world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. And he goes on, the Buddha goes on. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, There are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what can first be called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we're, what we give. It's still mine. Really how I began, uh, first began giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. In this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have, and then afterwards may even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. We give open-heartedly, open-handedly, with both hands. We share what we have, because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's a, a clear giving. And then the third is what's called queenly or kingly giving. And that's when we give the best of what we have, 
even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of whatever's been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. And in this we could say there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. The 8th century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva said, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. Desmond Tutu from South Africa said, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks of humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as we know, we don't always live with the purity and completeness of queenly or kingly generosity. This, at least, is in part one of the reasons that we practice. Something that I think is really important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image of what you might, that you might have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's really important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion, when in fact we may be acting out of fear of loss or fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and perpetuates delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness. 
and disconnection, which in turn causes suffering, continued suffering in ourself and maybe in another person or other people as well. And we might be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not-self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of just a very simple okayness about being here meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here we are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive and undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this really needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something, getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed, from the learned, the conditioned feelings of lack. There may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We might give ourselves away or lose ourselves in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving in support of others. When this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted and weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a deep, and true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. 
our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the the relative level of life, and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness, and our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are really perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. <clears throat> and in looking at uh, the practice of generosity from another perspective, <clears throat> there's a practice that uh, a Tibetan teacher t- uh, told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving, even to themselves, and may not be able to ask for help or be able to receive it graciously if and when it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. So the practice that this uh, uh, Tibetan teacher told me about is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as particularly valuable. So like maybe a potato or a turnip, And you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand. And you keep passing it, one hand to the other hand, back and forth, hand to hand, until it gets easy and you don't feel foolish. And then there are higher practices. If one's motivated, inclined to continue the practice of generosity and enlightenment, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere in a mandala form. 
At one point, I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, it was a mound of rice that was the offering, which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without all of the paraphernalia, learning to give and learning to receive, letting go of control and receiving what's given, receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of really, truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, focused, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and a developing, growing equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through the body, to any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath, from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We're learning that this very life is our path to liberation, and that our liberation is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi's response was, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim, the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help to free others, and we give to help to free ourselves. This is really the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and and to live it quite naturally as who we are. So I'd like to close the talk this evening with another story. About 29 years ago, Along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. One year, I invited him to come and stay in my house, uh, the house that burned down that I mentioned in the Anicca, the talk about impermanence, which was a small, very old five-room log house. 
out in the Michigan woods. At that point, uh, uh, just one of my sons and I were living there. So the summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway, and Wallace was the first one to get out. He's quite a big man, about six foot three inches tall and big-boned, and looked even bigger in his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those um, cars in the center circle of the circus that it pulls up into the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out. More and more people keep coming out of this car. And one is amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. So as my son and I watched, seven people emerged from this tiny car. Wallace's helpers and members of his family. It turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And the thought came into my mind, how will we all live and sleep in our tiny house? Well, the space really seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would stop by in the afternoon to meet with and to listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 in the morning, 12.30 a.m. Then it was time, at that time of night or early morning, it was time for a big dinner because no meals were to be taken through the afternoon or evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and habits. How I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences, and various other preferences. Wallace and one of the other members of his family smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. And people, as I said, slept all over the house. The day began quite late in the morning. Uh, and with the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies, uh, 1 a.m., 1 o'clock in the morning, was dinner time. And every afternoon the house would be filled with 15 or 20 people coming by to listen as Wallace shared teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there would be bowls of food at the door left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 midnight or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. As we all sat in a a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to uh, our ten days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they'd brought with them 
in gratitude for us sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. And he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-hearted flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. When everyone left the next day, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like playing a movie backwards. And then the two of us, my son and I, walked back into the house and stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our house, holding all of the people, holding all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk when we walked back in. And yet somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk with a poem by Mary Oliver called Goldenrod, a very simple poem about generosity. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold, in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy, and why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving away one's gold. And let's sit silently for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.